Today we kick off a new series. All right. Well, to be more precise, actually, we run into the intro for the new series. As I try to set the scene for where we're going to be going next over the next four weeks or so. We're going to, we, we feel that it's important coming through the summer where we uh, dug into a Bible text over the duration of the summer uh, to kind of dig in now to what it means to follow Jesus, okay? And over the last month or so while I've been off work, uh, I've been trying to slowly every day read through the Gospels, just a couple of verses or a couple of chapters, sorry, every day, just to try and take my time reading. And it got me thinking much about what it takes to follow Jesus. Okay, don't worry, I haven't been having some form of existential crisis, all right? Got my hair braided and came back wearing an anklet. Okay, that hasn't happened, okay? It's just got me thinking about what it means, right? Discipleship is one of the buzzwords in the church right now. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be discipled? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And more importantly, what does it take? So often we rush, don't we, in the church to suggest and consume uh, and create resources and courses, five-step programs and essential reading to answer these sorts of questions, which are big ones for us that follow Jesus. And those things are all great, right? I'm not running them down. They're great. But they don't necessarily end up creating disciples, people who long to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did. See, Jesus' words were really simple. When you read the gospel accounts again and again and again and again, his words were simple, follow me. But we all know that following is hard, right? The words are simple, aren't they? But what it means is hard. So what does it take? Okay, well, that's what we're going to be getting into over the next four weeks. So today, as I set the scene, I want us to think about where we are as we answer Jesus' call to follow me, right? That's where I want us to go today. Where are we? Like, where are we personally as we come to answer that call? I love cycling. Lots of you will know that. It's a big feature of my life. I have the world's worst tans, right? Over the last month, I've been wearing shorts, and it's a horror story, right? Because my cycling shorts are like this long. Normal shorts are like this long. There's just the most horrific tans down there. Like, it's embarrassing, right? And the thing is, I got into road cycling, but I wasn't kind of excited about road cycling. I was more excited about mountain biking, which I used to do, right? And that's kind of what I was passionate about. But over time, the guys that I mountain biked with, they all kind of went back to motocross or they got injured and they decided, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I really didn't have a crew of people that I could mountain bike with. And so eventually I just decided one day, well, I see cyclists on the road all the time. I love bikes. So let's just sell the mountain bike, get a road bike. I'm going to start cycling on the road, right? And that was kind of how it started, right? So I bought this cheap road bike, got it on Gumtree, and off I went. That's how lots of people start. And I loved it, right? Like if you run and somebody says, oh, I went for a run for an hour, you've probably not went an awful lot further than your street. Like you're like, you're like maybe six, seven miles. I don't know how far you've run, but you haven't went that far in an hour. Whereas if you're on a bike, you can go really far in an hour. You can do like 20 miles. You can see the countryside, country lanes, get away from it all. And I loved that about it. But the thing about cycling, and lots of hobbies if we're honest, is that you start with just a basic love for whatever it is, and then you get wrapped up in all the extras, don't you? 
Like, it just starts with, like, I wanted a bike so I could get out on country lanes. I loved it. But then, all of a sudden, it's all the stuff that comes along with it, right? The kit, overly expensive kit that you have to buy. A Strava, right, to compare yourself to everybody else who's riding bikes. Events and races, whether I want to join a club or not. Etiquette, right? There's a whole etiquette to cycling. Cycling culture, getting into the Tour de France or whatever else comes with it. You start with just a love for cycling. But then it's everything else that comes with it. And it probably really came to a head for me on one particular day, right? This is about to get intimate between me and the church fellowship right now, okay? I was getting ready to go out on a cold day, all right? Uh, And see, the rules, right, with cycling is, you know those bib shorts things? People often call them, like, you know those awful leotard things that you cyclists wear, right? Those things, right? You're not meant to wear any underwear under those, okay? So, right, that's already a bit graphic for lots of you, okay? That's an image that you'll never get rid of, right? So you're thinking bib shorts is bad enough, but no, it gets worse, okay? If it's cold, you might wear leg warmers. Sounds like something from the 80s, right? But the thing is, right, the leg warmers have to go on before the bib shorts go on, okay? So there I am, one day in, like, October, putting on these leg warmers while standing in the nip, okay? And I catch a sight of myself in the mirror, And in my head, I'm like, I hope joy never sees me like this. I don't know how we could come back from this, right? And I had this moment where I'm like, how on earth did I get here, right? What has happened to me? And that's the thing, right? Because when we get into something we are passionate about, we love that thing. But then all the rest of the stuff comes with it. We get wrapped up in it all, to marrying someone and then meeting their mad extended family that comes with it, to having kids not fully sure of everything you're going to get yourself into with it, to the job that you took and you never knew about all the rest of the stuff that would come along with the job and on and on and on and on. Over the last year, Joy and I have talked really often about how our rules and leadership here at Central doesn't just wrap us up in all that the life of this church means, but unfortunately or fortunately, whatever way you want to look at it, for El and Levi, they don't get a choice. They're just wrapped up in it all as well. And it's quite clear to me when I read the Gospels that the same things happened to the disciples. See, they answered the call to follow. When Jesus came and said, follow me, they said yes. They got on board, but then they got swept up into a whole world they maybe never imagined when they gave their yes to Jesus, right? The miracles, the crowds, the teaching, the cross, the persecution that was to come. They got swept up in it all. And it seems to me when I read Luke and Acts, both written by the same author, one tracking the life of Jesus and the other tracking the life of the church that bore his name, that those first followers, got wrapped up in a whole world of the life of Jesus that they then started sharing with the whole world. And as we kick off this new series called Follow Me, if we follow, what are we getting wrapped up in? If we answer the call, and lots of us today have, it's a church, right? I should hope that lots of you are Christians, okay? You've already decided to follow Jesus. What do you get wrapped up in when you decide to follow him? Short answer, The church. I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you this morning, right? But when you say yes, you get wrapped up in this thing. Our following Jesus leads us to being wrapped up in the church. And I realize that for many people in this generation, that might seem like an underwhelming answer. 
As lots of you probably already are, you've probably already listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the hit uh, Christianity Today podcast that's out there. I too have listened to it, but it doesn't just need to be that. You could have consumed any number of stories about the fall of influential Christian leaders around the globe. Or you could even approach things like some of the attitudes of high-profile leaders towards things like the American election or vaccines or whatever else. And we can so easily end up every bit as disillusioned about the community that bears Jesus' name as the rest of the world seems to be, can't you? We see hypocrisy as people claim to live one way and actually live the other. We see the church's impotent, powerless, weak, none of the life or power of the New Testament that we read. None of that lives here, right? We see all of the same individuality in here as exists out there. Like we talk of community, but do we really live it? Or the same consumerism in here that grips the world out there. You see, it's possible for me to say that when you say yes to following Jesus, you get wrapped up in the church and for you to feel right now, I'm just kind of hoping for something else, right? But that's not how Paul saw it. This is what he wrote in the Ephesians, which is going to be our text from today. This is Ephesians 3, verses 7 to 13. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the manifold wisdom of God. And maybe you're thinking, really? Like, seriously? The wisdom of God is this? The church? You see, it's all about how we see as we set off following Jesus. And we need to begin to see the way Paul did if we're going to follow Jesus into all that he might wrap us up in. I really believe that, right? And you might say, well, sure you believe that, right? Of course you do. You're paid to believe that. We pay you to believe that, right? And that's true in lots of ways, okay? I take that one. Though I would humbly contend, right, that if I didn't do this, I'd be okay, right? I'd be able to do some other things. As I was at a meeting this week and someone told me while I was standing there, I mean, Dave, I know you can usually get people to buy whatever it is you're selling, but, right? So, I mean, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be selling you iPhones or coffee paraphernalia or something you don't need for too much money, right? I would humbly contend that that's probably what I would do, but I'm not here because I'm paid to be here. I'm not here because I'm paid to be here. I would be here if I wasn't paid to be here. Why? Because I can't help myself. I have always been fascinated and captivated by the church. And I see the flaws and I see the failures as vividly as anyone else does. But also I see the potential, its beauty, its role in shaping the world in incredible ways down through human history. 
And over the next few weeks, we'll get into the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. But today, I want to engage with two things flowing from what Paul has to say as we set off following him. And it's these. How we see ourselves and how we see the world. And the first of those is how we see ourselves. Here are those first few verses from our passage. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. A number of years ago, when I worked as the worship pastor out at Carmoney, we had a wedding on. We had lots of weddings on. People got married all the time uh, in that church. And over the years of working in that role, we kind of tied down kind of the mechanics of it quite well, particularly around people that would be involved in the service, right? As weddings have kind of developed over years, there's more tech involved. There's very often videos and songs and there's live worship and there could be a string quartet playing. And there's all the different things that now happen around weddings. And so over a while, we kind of figured out, well, look, lots of these weddings now increasingly don't just happen on the weekends. They happen through the week as well. It's sometimes hard to get volunteers. So we started a process where we charged for the volunteers to be part of it, which meant that if they couldn't, we were charging the same rate as we could go out and book somebody from like an AV company to come in and do it in a professional capacity, right? And it wasn't very much money. Most of the time, it was no problem. People saw that these people were given their time. Some of them were taking time off work to be there. It was no problem. They were happy to pay for the help. But then this one time, we had this bride who was like really, like had a big issue with me saying, look, it costs to have these people involved in the service. She kicked up this fuss about it. Every time we would kind of be sending these emails back and forth saying, okay, it costs 50 pounds, okay, for the AV tech, or it costs 50 quid for the organist who's playing during your wedding or whatever. These were not big sums of money, but she was like, she just kept having an issue with it. Uh, And it kept going on and on and on. I didn't back down, begrudgingly she paid, okay? But I spent my time thinking on the run up to the wedding, like maybe they're just really hard up, right? Maybe they've like really stretched themselves to the wedding and genuinely money is a problem and this was like a cost that they just didn't foresee and it's like the straw that broke the camel's back, right? And I started to be quite like, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's a problem for them. Maybe I should back off and say, do you know what? It's okay. We, we won't charge you, whatever. And then we get to the day of the wedding and I'm like arriving in with my guitar and whatever else and I'm checking everything's all right. And as I arrive, the florist is already there and the florist has bought these two absolutely astonishing floral arrangements for the front of church, right? On these big pillars. I mean, they're taller than me. I mean, I don't even know what the flowers were, right? They were massive and orange and white, and it was huge. And I was like, those are the most incredible flowers I've ever seen, to which the florist replies, "Mm -hmm, that's what 1,200 quid will get you. And I'm just like, what? 1,200 pounds for these two floral arrangements, right? And the thing that it got me after that, while I set up with the various other people who had given up their time to be in here, knowing how hard I'd had to argue for 50 quid for like several hours time from someone's day, right, was that very clearly in this person's eyes, flowers were worth more, way more for their place in her wedding than the people who were making it happen. And here's the thing, right? Worth is a big I wonder what you see when you look into the mirror. 
I wonder what you see as you look into the mirror. I wonder how you see yourself. You see, we have this tendency, don't we, to look at our lives and see what we do as the metric for worth, don't we? Very often the first thing you will say when you meet somebody is, oh, how's it going? Oh, what do you do? And somewhere in your head, lots of people have already started to do the sums for like, oh, they're, you know, well, that's a good job, or that's not a good job, or they're this, that, and the other, right? What you do. Or maybe you look at your past or things and see things that you've done, stuff that's in your life right now that you don't particularly like, and maybe you see it as more significant than maybe you see yourself. Sometimes we look in the mirror and all we see is our stuff, don't we? All we see is our shortcomings. All we see is the things that we don't have, the things we want so badly. Sometimes all we see is our stuff. And partially it's true, right? Because we are all broken after all. We're all flawed. We're all failing in our own ways. Paul knew that about himself, right? The message translates verse 7 like this. This is my life work, helping people understand and respond to this message. It came as a sheer gift to me, a real surprise, God handling all the details. He knew he was broken, but he also knew that God had worked in him. But as he works to explain what God is up to in the world, this is what he says. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, right? This is interesting, this little part, okay? You see, the word least is actually in its original translation a grammatical impossibility, okay? By that I mean Paul is taking the word and emphasizing it beyond what we see as possible in English, okay? What I mean by that, he's actually saying, I'm the leastest, right? Right? He's not just saying I'm the least. I'm the leastest, okay? It's like what El has taken to say at the minute, which all kids do at some point. Daddy, that's worser, right? That's what he's doing. I am the leastest, right? It's, it's like he's taking it further than it's, than it's possible to be. Paul is saying I'm the littlest, leastest, smallest, worser. There's a bit of a play in words going on here too, all right? Because Paul's name in Latin is Paulus, which means little or small. And the Christian tradition also says that Paul was actually quite a small man. In other words, you can see where I'm going. He was saying, I'm small Paul, which sounds like a really wick name for a 90s dance DJ, right? Small Paul, right? John Stott says this, he may be saying little by name, little in stature, and morally and spiritually littler than the littlest of all Christians. And that's an incredibly humble or pushing down of oneself for anyone, isn't it? But yet, even further, this is Paul, right? It's Paul. He may have been small Paul, but he was a giant of the faith. Such courage, such gifts, such a fruitful ministry, and yet don't mistake it for the sort of faux humility that's all around us in our world. In Northern Ireland, we're particularly good at it, right? Have you ever noticed how bad Northern Irish people are at taking compliments, right? They're just terrible. Oh, you look lovely today. Oh, this old thing. Oh, you know, that sort of vibe that's in our world. I mean, the hunting for compliments. I mean, I know that wasn't very good today, like lengthy pause until someone goes, oh no, you were brilliant, right? We're terrible at it. Don't for a second think that it's that. He really believed it about himself. How do I know? Well, it's not the only time he says something like this in his writings, right? He had a habit of speaking of himself like this. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am 
the worst. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. This is Paul. The guy that launches the church all around the world of that time. It's Paul. This is astonishing humility. And yet, at the same time, this is Paul who says, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Incredible humility. Incredible authority. Paul's life was categorized by incredible humility. The sort of person who could repeatedly say, I'm the least, I'm the leastest, I'm worser. And who could also stand in the most incredible authority. The Christian life, our following, holds these two things together. How we see matters. How we see ourselves matters. If we're ever going to carry humility and authority together for how they should be held. See, I know there are some people today and you can't see past your, can't see past your past. You can't see past your stuff and it profoundly affects how you follow Jesus. So you follow him from a place of shame or with parts of you hidden or held back. You follow with the anxiety of somebody living with imposter syndrome, don't you? You follow never fully believing that you can walk with the authority of what God has done and is doing because your stuff looms largest in your line of sight. But also, I know there's people here today and you've just, you've got the humility and the authority in the wrong way round, right? You're living like my life and my gifts and my resources are the authority in my life and there's a humility to what I think God can do. See, the Christian life holds humility and authority together, but in the right proportions. I want to tell you today that even on your worst days, You are never so far as to be beyond the reach of grace. And even on your best days, you are never so good as to be beyond the need of grace. Whoever you are today, wherever you're at, whatever your stuff looks like, whether life's in a good place or a bad place, whether church is exactly where you want to be today or the last place you want to be today, I want to tell you today that you are never so far Never too far to be beyond the reach of grace. And you're never too good to be beyond the need of it. Paul knew of his need of Jesus. He was every bit as sure of how much he needed it as he was sure of what God had called him to be and do. Why is it that when I speak to artists, right, whoever they are, whether they're musicians, whether they are people that paint, whether they're people that draw or do kind of the hand lettering thing or whatever, right, why is it that when I speak to them about the work that they've done, right, it's on the wall somewhere or it's something they've written and it's there presented before me, they can't help but look at it and the first thing they will mention is to tell me the flaws, It's like my wife, Joy. She cannot help but do it, right? If she's like, we've been painting bits and pieces in the kitchen and I'll come in and she'll like, she'll have painted something and I'll walk in and I'm like, wow, it looks amazing. And the the only thing she'll point out is the wick bits, right? She'll be like, oh, that bit's terrible. Like everything's amazing. Look at the state of that wee corner over there, right? She can't help but see the flaws when she looks at it. 
But our God doesn't see us like that. And so how we see ourselves matters as we set off to follow him. Paul says he's the leastest, fully aware of his past, fully aware that he had persecuted and put to death Christians, but fully aware too that that could never hold him back. We are all the least, aren't we? If we're honest, we're all worser. As you look around the room today, we're not people that look at each other and go, I'm better than him, and I'm probably doing better than her, and that, you know, we're all worser. We're all the leastest. And I want us all to hear, all of us at some point in our lives will hear the voice loudest when we look into the mirror, won't we? The voice that says, you're a fraud. The voice that says, you're no good, you never were, and you never, and you never will be. We will all know that voice in our lives at some point. I want to say today, that is not the only voice speaking over your life. Paul writes this a little bit later on. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to remind you that Jesus never sets criteria or qualifications or having all your ducks in a line as the requirements for following him. There is incredible humility and incredible authority. Jesus knows exactly who you are. He sees the flaws too and yet invites you to come all the same. As you set off to follow Jesus, how you see yourself matters. But secondly, how you see the world matters too. Here are verses 10 to 13 again. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. How we see the world matters. When I was growing up, my granda was always around our house. My nanny and granda lived in Derry, and so very often they would come and stay for kind of extended periods of time. Uh, and particularly as they grew older, uh, and particularly in the latter years of his life, when my nanny died uh, and his health was kind of deteriorating, he came to live in our house for quite a while. And Granda was like Derry, Northern Irish, through and through, right? And by that I mean, okay, he was something that was kind of quite distinct with that generation, right? He was particularly suspicious of anything foreign, right? Anything foreign, right? Now, he didn't particularly like the English. He didn't particularly like Scotland either. And I mean, if any mention of Southern Ireland was mentioned at that time, he would have said you were going to visit the free state where you would be surrounded by rebels, right? That's kind of what we're talking here. And what was even worse was food. So in the night, you know, Nando's came to Newton Abbey and we were like, we're going to Nando's. He was like, ah, they'll cook you pigeon. I mean, and don't even get me started on what he thought about Chinese food, Okay. I should say I have not also inherited his low-grade racism. Okay, anyway, he was an amazing man, incredibly 
generous. He never gave up. Faithful, honest, except when it came to telling doctors anything that he thought they'd want to hear so that he could get out of hospital, right? Funny, full of old school, stiff, upper lip, kind of made of granite, honor and bloody mindedness, right? He was that guy. But yet, for him, like all of us, his life had formed a certain view of the world. And we all have a certain view of the world, don't we? We all do. We all frame our view of the world one way or another. My friend Pete Hughes, a while ago, when we ran an input session here at church, framed it a bit like this, okay? We're going to get all diagrammatical here, okay, right? It's getting mathematical, so it's for you boffins out there, right? Here's the deal. In the world at any single time, like right now, there are three billion bits of data floating around you, okay? And you, a human being, okay, you take them in via your senses, okay? Your smell, your sight, your taste, your touch, all of that stuff, okay? You take them in via the senses. And then when they come in, your brain generalizes and deletes and distorts stuff so that at the end, what you actually end up with is a hundred pieces of data. The brain takes three billion bits of data and brings it down to 100 bits of data. And this little bit here, this generalize, delete, distort, that's your worldview. That part is your worldview. Joy and I love uh, a good crime documentary. We've been watching real life CSI on iPlayer. Joy says all the time that like, if she wasn't a teacher, she would love to be a CSI. Anyway, interviewing one of the detectives as part of the documentary, he says this at a point along the way, now that I'm a murder detective and I know what I know and I've seen what I've seen, I look at everyone and everything differently. I can never go back. That's a worldview. Seeing what he's seen, doing what he's done. He looks at the world differently. Just to give you an example, maybe you once in your life have had an unfortunate incident with a manhole cover, right? One time you were walking, you tripped over, it was terribly embarrassing, everyone laughed at you, right? Let's say you had an unfortunate incident with a manhole cover, and now, every time you're walking anywhere, all you can, you're like constantly scanning for manhole covers. Where are they? They're going to jump up and get me. So you see them, and then you do everything in your power to avoid stepping on them. In fact, you may even tell other people, don't step in those manhole covers once this happened to me, and da 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 You get into it, right? Your behavior changes, because one time in your life you had... A negative experience with a manhole cover. Ministry is available after this morning's worship if that was you, right? Your behavior changes. It's been informed by your worldview. It's the filter by which you begin to see the world. And maybe you never thought about it before. And you spent lots of your life thinking that people around you think the same way that you do, right? Lots of us were utterly shocked in the last number of years by things like Brexit or things like Trump and now things like vaccines and stuff like that, right? We are utterly shocked that other people that are close to us that we know could think so totally different from where we are. We spend so much of our time thinking, everyone thinks like I do, when in reality, no, they don't. And it's blown your mind to think that people definitely don't think the way you do, even inside the church. And so the question is today, how do you see the world? As you look at your life 
as you look at what you have, as you look at all you've been through and you're going through, as you get up in the morning and you make your way to your places of work, you see your family on your way out, your friends in the evening, whatever. How do you see the world? Because it profoundly affects how you follow Jesus, what you expect of him and what you expect of you. How you see the world matters. I've been through this stuff before, okay, but it's important. You see, for lots of us that have grown up in the mainstream church tradition, we've probably grown up with a view of the biblical story that focused on these things, right? Normally, the way in which we came at all of the world was to look at the fall and redemption, right? It focused on the fall and redemption. So we get into this intense focus on our sin and the need to be saved. And the thing is, that's true, right? For lots of us that grew up in church tradition, that's True. We heard all that lots of times. It's completely true. We are all broken and lost. And Jesus did go to the cross to save us. And he was raised from the dead. And our salvation, our real hope is in him, right? That is true. I want to affirm that today. But it's not the whole picture. It's only half the story. When what we really seek is the great story of the Bible. And when we live out of that story, it might change the way we see the world. You see, the full story is creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. I get that there are some subsets of some of those that those of you that are really into this might have, things like Israel, the church, etc., etc., right? But these are the four big headings that most people accept. And here's the thing. That's a worldview. Because when we start with creation, we begin to see where we're from. We begin to see that there was a design We begin to see that the start and the origin of life was perfect. It wasn't brokenness, it was beauty. And as we approach the fall, we begin to get answers and some input into why the world is broken, why people do what they do, why difficult things are in the life in which we live. How do we answer the questions of pain and suffering and challenges? Well, the fall begins to engage with those. And as we look at redemption, we begin to find the answer for what on earth we do with it. And as we get to restoration, we begin to see the end, where we're going, what we're for. You see, we're not just broken people born bad in need of a savior, the only one who was ever good. And when we give our lives to him, our place in heaven is safe, right? There's so much more than that. The world was made perfect. Sin destroyed it. And so God worked through and walked with an ancient people in order to bless the whole earth. And when nobody could undo the wreckage of the fall, Jesus did on the cross and resurrection. And then he ushered in the kingdom and the church was born when the Holy Spirit descended. And this kingdom reality is the world into which we're born, the church in which we are a part of the family until one day he returns to make it all perfect again. I realize I've just said a lot in about 30 seconds, right? It's so much more. And it's so obvious that when we have this vision of what the Bible has to say, not just the fall and redemption, it's so obvious that this means a whole new worldview because it isn't just that we're sinners and we need saved. We do, right? We do. It's that God set this world into motion, beautiful, full of wonder, perfect, and it all, every single part got bent out of shape. And through Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the people of God, he is undoing the fracture and will one day recreate it all. We get to be part of it all. See, the half story of fall and redemption just tells us that our purpose is to convert others, be separated from the world, and wait for heaven. 
The full story tells us that our purpose is to renew all things. Why do I say that today? I say that because of what Paul says next. This is what he says. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, this is what God was up to. This right here, this that you're sitting in this morning, this that you belong to, this is what God was up to. This church thing, this is how God gets going with the renewal of all things. And you might not believe it. And it might not look, it might look anything like wisdom, right? If you were doing it your way, you might say the church is the last thing I would have done, right? I would have done it a whole other way, but you're not God and I'm not, thank goodness. And this is the way that he chose to do it. This is the thing that this verse says even angels are clamoring to see. This. This is what they clamor to see. And this is what you get wrapped up in when you follow him. How we see matters. You see, the story of God started in a garden and it's destined for a city and the church is God's vehicle to build it. No other thing, not nature, not the animal kingdom, not even angels, as astonishing as all of those things are, but the church is to display what God is up to. And no one else, no institution, no organization, no nation or group can do it. John Stott, in the way that only he could, said that Paul is saying that the church is central to history, central to the gospel, and central to Christian living. In other words, he just affirms that this is what God was up to. The question is, though, is that the filter that you see the world through? As you said today, and as over the next couple of weeks, we unpack what it means to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, all in, how you see the world will profoundly impact how you follow him, what you think he's capable of, what you pray for, what you believe, how you live. How you see the world matters. Or is the church the filter that you see the world through that has maybe made you cynical, underwhelmed, unimpressed, or burned out? Because if this vision, this worldview captures your heart, your following Jesus begins to be marked by things like this. Rest, which must be greater than exhaustion. Hunger, which must be greater than apathy. Gratitude, which must be greater than fear. Love, which must be greater than hate. Sacrifice, greater than privilege. Generosity, greater than self-interest. Faith, greater than doubt. Celebration, greater than cynicism. Which one of those lists marks your life? Because if they are informed by the biblical worldview, they should be in the first one, right? And not the second. The challenge is today that maybe you need to change the filter through which you're looking at the world.